Blog Talk Radio. Hi everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell... Hi everyone, welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. This is Jean, and I'm on the air tonight with Ellie. Hi, Ellie, are you there? Hi, how are you? Good, nice to hear your voice. Same to you. And I do believe that Miss Catherine is on Twitter tonight, listening in and tweeting some of the best bits from our conversation. And Amanda has the night off. She's just had a really nice beach vacation. I think she's probably admiring her tan or something at this point. So And shoveling snow. <laughs> shoveling snow. <laughs> welcome back, Amanda. <laughs> yeah, welcome home. <laughs> We're not bitter at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, so on tonight's show, we're going to be talking about menopause, or as a friend of mine calls it, mental pause. And before you think, whoa, I'm too young for this topic, let me just say that even women in their 30s can start to have some early signs of the change. And so this topic will be useful information for women of all ages and for you men who are listening, and we know you're out there. Uh, understanding this topic is really essential for you as well to help you appreciate what the women in your life might be going through currently or imminently. Uh, Before we start on this topic, I just want to remind you that this discussion is for informational purposes only. We are not medical experts, and this show isn't at all intended to be medical advice. Our goal is to just raise awareness of the concerns and give you some food for thought and possibly some starting points to talk to your doctor or do some research. So when we talk about menopause, we tend to think of hot flashes, weight gain, and other symptoms of hormonal changes. But in fact, menopause as a word means the ceasing of menstruation. And all those fun symptoms that we otherwise call menopause really refer to the four to ten year roller coaster ride prior to that, which is actually called perimenopause. So that's kind of the time of hormonal flux that precedes menopause. Anyway, for the sake of simplicity tonight, we'll probably use those two terms interchangeably, and you'll hear us refer to perimenopause as menopause, but uh, you know, we're talking about sort of that giant umbrella of symptoms that happen as we go through changes in our life and how it relates to our recovery. So before we dig into our topic any further, I would like to welcome our guest to tonight's show and have her tell us a little bit about our, herself. Elizabeth is joining us tonight, and poor Elizabeth has had a crazy day, but we're glad you made it onto the show. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Oh, thank you, Jean, and thank you, Ellie. It's it's truly an honor to be here. I feel very um, humbled to be here. I'm such a fan of the show. I really am, so it's kind of, it's really cool. Oh, we're thank glad you. You're here. Thanks for being on. Yeah. So, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, um, well, I, uh, I'm married. I've been married to the same guy for 32 years. Oh, congratulations. And we have, <laughs> thank you, and we have two daughters um, who are 29 and 25. Um, I, uh, I've been in sobriety uh, for 15 months and um, very, very relieved and happy to be able to say that tonight. Um, feels very good to be able to say that. Um, 
I am a professional woman and um, work a full-time job, and it's a pretty big job. And um, so there's a lot of, you know, as I'm sure people are out there thinking, yeah, so do I. So, you know, there are a lot of um, pressures that go with that. And, of course, I was, you know, classic high-functioning alcoholic where I go, you know, um, excuse me, beat the band all day and then um, come home at night and unwind that way. And, you know, honestly, I I, I come by that, honestly, because um, when I, uh, I didn't really drink that much in high school. Um, In college, I uh, was um, working and doing internships and things like that. And um, I started sort of hanging around with these older girls, nurse practitioners and things like that, and who were really into drinking wine at night. And um, so it was very mellow, very sophisticated. There wasn't a lot of partying, but we would definitely get our wine buzz on. And um, and I thought, you know, and my family was also kind of a, a drinking family, but in a very sophisticated, proper way. So people would drink their scotch and drink their, you know, their drinks um, and feel very entitled about it. And um, everybody was very successful. And um, I don't know, it was it was just really like, you know, okay and very fancy and, and uh, you know, a thing to be celebrated, you know. So um, when my... When my grandmother died, I was uh it was about twenty five years ago. Um she she died at eighty three, but she had cirrhosis when she did die. And I remember that that was a wake up call for my dad. Now my dad um was not a big drinker. I, I don't remember ever seeing him drunk or anything, but um he he's a pretty thoughtful guy and it it really kind of jarred him and I remember talking to him and him saying, you know, this is in our family. Like we have this in our family and my my my, my grandmother was, you know, uh uh well you don't know, but I'll tell you, she was a newspaper reporter, she was um a very sexy, uh, broad. Her her husband uh, was killed in a train a- accident when my father was eight years old, and um, I didn't find out till till years and years later, like ten years ago, that um, that train accident was. Uh, he was on a he my my grandfather was on a golf outing in Indiana, and when he he had been drinking, and when he went to get on the train, he slipped and fell under the train as it was. Uh pulling away from the station, yeah. So both of my grandparents, very different circumstances, died of alcoholism, you know, or, you know, an extension of alcoholism. So, you know, my my, my grandfather, who I never knew pretty violently, and my grandmother, you know, died of old age, but, you know, she was pretty demented in the end and very bright, funny, you know, just a sassy old broad. So at any rate, I remember my dad talking about it, and actually my dad um, started becoming really um, concerned about my drinking and would talk to me about it, but not um, necessarily directly. He would talk to my husband about it. My kids would talk about my drinking with my with uh, their dad, my husband, and my uh, my father, and there was this little sort of buzz that was going on, no pun intended, <laughs> um, <laughs> and... So, um, 
anyway, so I, but again, like there was this this whole other sort of, um, you know, juxtaposed position of this drinking in my family because it was also very celebrated and, you know, people would get together at country clubs and have giant highballs, you know. So, um, so at any rate, I, you know, so I'm in college with, with these girls for drinking lots of wine, loving it. Then I went to graduate school and, um, um, I remember drinking to relax at night and not thinking anything of it. It seemed very okay, you know. I'd go to get up at, you know, four in the morning. I'd study for class. I'd go to class in the morning. Then I was a graduate assistant in the afternoon, uh, prepare classes, teach, come home, and then start drinking to relax and study and go to sleep at 10 o'clock, and then I would just do it all over again. And then I graduated, and we got married, and... um I, I did I did versions of that for the next let's see twenty one I mean you know for the next thirty years I did versions of that you know and honestly it really didn't start to show up until perimenopause the the problem in me I mean people talked about it my my kids would talk about it they were angry at me a lot my my husband would get, you know, really annoyed with me um, when I would, um, you know, uh, drink too much or do something like lose my phone like I did t- today. And he would think, you know, oh, she must be hungover or she's, you know, he, he was always mad at me. Um, <clears throat> so at any rate, I um, it didn't really get to be a problem where other people started noticing it until about 10 years ago, I was about 40, 42. And what happened was I started writing a newspaper column. And the column got to be very, very successful. And um, I was recognized. And I started to live in this fishbowl, and it freaked me right out. But I I wasn't really aware of how scary that was to be in the fishbowl. Um, Everybody knew my name. They'd come up to me. in my town and even someone on a national level, I was known to different people and it started to feel really scary. But again, like no no problem for me. I would come home to my wine and relax and, you know, tweet and chat and do all my stuff and go back to work and do it all again. And um, really it wasn't until... I would say the last, well, I've been sober for 15 months, but I would say 50 was when the hooey hit the sand for me. And um, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I've got a problem. I bought a dog spontaneously thinking she was going to be a sobriety dog for me, which actually she's turned out to be, but it took me, you know, um, four more years to get sober. And I... Um, I started a blog, except under a, a fake name, of course, and um, aborted that because I could never write when I was sober. <laughs> and, you know, it's just all sorts of crazy things. Oh, yeah, I should probably tell you that I retired the column about five years ago. So um, the fishbowl didn't really go away, but the the deadline pressure that I know you guys know about because you produce this show every week <laughs> started to go away. So that, that was helpful me but um you know in terms of my own everyday stressors 
but the drinking actually in some ways got worse. Well, because of the progression of the illness, of course. So, yeah, I think that's me. <laughs> that's me to about here. I, I can tell you about what, if it's helpful to you, I can tell you about um, kind of the wackadoodle changes that led me to to sobriety, ultimately led me to sobriety, and then, you know, my my version of the bottom. Although my bottom's pretty high, I might I might say, but but um, if that's helpful now, or we can wait. However Absolutely, yeah, definitely. That. What what made you make the decision to make this important change in your life? Well, so I had turned fifty, and um, and I was still since this is about menopause, I'll talk about my female parts. Um, I was still getting a period and having you know the monthly hormonal changes, um, but they were getting crazy where I would feel, I think that's one of the reasons why I had to give the column up because I would not sleep for days in a row and I just couldn't function, you know, and I was able to work my day job okay because I had total flexibility on that end, so I could sort of time it to my the calendar, which now in retrospect sounds really crazy making, but the column just kept coming every week. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had some lab changes. I, I, I went to the doctor for, uh, you know, my, my yearly exam, and my cholesterol that was always really stellar was not right. My sugar had started to change. Um, I looked, I mean, my husband, who's a doctor, says that there's no such thing as pre-diabetes, but I'm going to call it that. Um, and my blood pressure was out of control, and I will tell you that it was it had been for a while, but I was taking medication for it, but the medication stopped working. So those were kind of out there. And then one night, November 1st of 2013, I went to a happy hour with a bunch of colleagues and friends and drank vodka like it was water and blacked out. And I woke up in the middle of the night, uh, like I had before, but not remembering how I got from the restaurant with all the colleagues to my bed. And I said to my husband, I need to go to the Betty Ford Center. And he said, who the hell do you think you are? (laughs) And I was like, oh, right. (laughs) He said, you need to stop drinking. And so the next day, I, I knew I had to stop drinking too. And um, but he was—he just said, "Get it together." And the next day, I called um, a friend and colleague and um, a woman in sobriety, long-term sobriety, who lives in LA, and she said, "Get to a meeting, stat." And I did. I mean, if she would have said, you know, climb Mount Everest, I would have done that. I would have done whatever she said, actually, at that point. I was so scared. Mm-hmm. And uh, November 2nd was my first full day of sobriety. And I honestly, I don't want to say I've never looked back, but I'm really happy that I've made that decision. I'm happy you have, too. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> me, too. Good for Thanks. you. Thanks. Thanks. So, so much for my stage fright. That went on for a while. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, don't apologize. Listen, not this is, at all. This is the beauty of this show: is that every single person that we get to hear from, we all 
learn from them and we all see ourselves in each other. And, you know, every person's story means the world to, to us and to everyone listening because it's just, it's such a great thing to, to be free to speak. It really is. I'm really, really glad that you're here and you're sharing. Absolutely. So, Let's uh, now that we know you a little bit better, and we know that we're all so we're all sort of in the same age group. Ellie, I think you're the youngin among among us, but you and I are only a couple years apart. I'm not accused of that age. very often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm 47, and um, so we're all sort yeah, of 40, in the same. I'm 45, so I'm, yeah. I'm right on your heels. So we're all kind of in the sort of the same, you know, age bracket here. And yet we're going to kind of talk about the last 10 years. So, you know, back to our 30s and we'll talk about about what's what's been and what's to come. But the way I kind of wanted to guide this discussion was to break it into three parts. And one was to talk about how alcohol affects us and our hormones when we're drinking. So we're going to back up the truck, and Ellie's going to share some information with us, and then we'll talk about that. And then we're going to talk about how um, early recovery and the detox um, symptoms and, the, and the, that early recovery change, how that jibes with hormonal changes in menopause. And then we'll talk about long-term recovery in menopause because each each stage is different, and depending how old you are when you get sober, you're going to hit at least one of those stages, uh, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, listen in. So, Ellie, I'll have you start by just sharing with us that reading about uh, Before We Quit. Absolutely. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I'll talk a little bit about... Um, what alcohol, how alcohol and hormones um, interchange before we've actually entered into sobriety. And there is um, interesting research that links the midlife hormone changes with increased alcohol abuse in women. The hormone changes involved with menopause cause all, all, all kinds of symptoms um, from sleep being interrupted by night sweats and hot flashes, Exhaustion from reduced sleep can lead to mental fatigue. Weight changes and changes in sex drive or function can wreak havoc on our self-esteem. Mood swings, anxiety, and depression are common, and we can experiment. We can sorry, we can experience somewhat of an identity crisis by the shift into a stage of life that marks the looming end of fertility and all that we associate with it, like youth and maternal importance and attractiveness and self-worth. Many women use alcohol to self-medicate these physical and emotional symptoms, and at first, it can appear to be a helpful tool. Initially, alcohol does seem to help with sleep, numb numb our anxiety, and help with our negative emotions. However, alcohol exacerbates all of the same problems over time. Using alcohol as a bomb can worsen the symptoms of menopause, which in turn can increase the usage, which can set off a spiral of drinking with growing negative consequences. This cycle then adds shame, our good friend shame, into the mix. Alcohol actually affects hormones on a physical level, so a woman in perimenopause, which we've described as the early stages of menopause that can begin as early as the late 30s or early 40s, um, women in that stage may find that drinking brings on or worsens the symptoms. In other words, women who drink heavily may find that they experience the first signs of menopause earlier and to a greater degree. Heavy drinking can decrease ovulation and is associated with increased risk for osteoporosis, heart disease, and breast cancer. One challenge that many women are faced with at this stage is isolation. Women with children may suddenly find themselves alone much more as the kids start driving and leave home for school or begin to go out alone in the evenings. 
Many women find that they are alone but not yet fully free, as children who are not quite fully independent still need a parent on standby for emergencies. As a result, women can spend a lot of time alone, and loneliness combined with some of the other physical and emotional changes at this time of life make drinking alone seem inevitable. I hear that from a lot of women that the the menopausal symptoms and perimenopausal symptoms often coincide with the early stages of empty nest syndrome, which is another stage in life that can that can really exacerbate women's drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Elizabeth, does this does this information resonate with you when you look back on to um, when you're actively drinking and when those first signs of menopause when those first lovely hot flashes and things started to appear, do you sort of identify with any of what you're hearing here? And do you think that it made it worse to be drinking? I do. This is Elizabeth. I I actually do not have hot flashes, mercifully. Um, I But I did definitely, you know, as I said earlier, I did have those mood, those those crazy mood swings where I would feel, you know, really anxious and be unable to sleep and then, you know, there would not be enough pizza and wine in the world to fill me up and um, it was, you know, as as was just read, it was a very evil cycle for me. Um, but of course at the time, you know, I mean, all the way through this, I felt very justified in my drinking and, um and not even angry about it or shameful. I was just drinking. You know, that's what I did. And somehow, I, I guess I said, my body must need it or something. I don't know. I have no idea what that was all about. But, um, but yeah, I mean, and then, oh, and then all the stuff about breast cancer and heart disease and osteoporosis, you know, I, I, I knew about this um, front and center for a lot of reasons, and I would just ignore it and say, well, I, I didn't ignore it, obviously. I, I just told you I was aware of it, but I would I would talk to myself and say, well, you know, nobody in your family's died of breast cancer, and oh, never mind about those calcifications that, that, that you're having and those MRIs that you're having. Um, everybody's still alive, and we don't have a history of it in our family, and, you know, on and on and on. And oh, never mind your grandmother that died of um cirrhosis, I mean, you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and and uh, so, yeah, and I, of course, was not. Um, you were not fine is what you mean. You, no. They were yes. saying you were, yes. but you weren't, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny you say that because I have been so lucky. I was referred to, uh, this is Jean, I was referred to a, uh, a doctor in my relatively small town, we're lucky enough to have a psychiatrist here who specializes in menopause. And so he specializes in women's hormones and in women in menopause. And that's a kind of an unusual specialization for a psychiatrist. So he brings some interesting perspectives to it. And one thing that he said on my very first appointment was that women tend to get uh, blown off by doctors and people when they ask for help because when we go to the doctor, like we may feel terrible when we're at home, but when we have a doctor's appointment, we put on decent clothes and we brush our teeth mm-hmm. and comb our hair and we we like dig deep because we always can find that energy to go out and face the world. And so we're in front of the mm-hmm. doctor and we kind of have our game face on. And when they say, how are you feeling, even when we're describing our symptoms, we really have uh, a shield up that makes it hard for them to see how lousy we're really feeling. 
And so as the world is telling us, you're fine. Look at you, Elizabeth. You're great. Look how good you're doing. Yeah. You know, you don't show them how you're really feeling inside. So I think it's mm-hmm. it's easy for people to blow off a lot of things. When I was doing you know, research for this show, I was surprised to find that um, heavy drinking can accelerate the onset of uh, menopause because it, it really does um, decrease your hormones. It, it, it mm-hmm. screws up your hormones, and so that can bring menopause on early. And so I didn't know this at the time, but I remember when my symptoms started in my late 30s, early 40s, and I remember my doctor and even some other ladies saying, oh, that's not menopause, you're way too young for that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, mm-hmm. it's probably stress, you know. But I look back on it now, and I, it was menopause. I mean, it hasn't changed, and I'm definitely in in process of that now. But I, I'm wondering now, looking back, if that wasn't a big part of it, if that part of why I brought those, if those symptoms were brought on early by the way that I was using alcohol and, and drinking every day, uh, not to blackout stage, but definitely just getting pickled day in and day out from 4 o'clock mm-hmm. till 11 o'clock every single day. And mm-hmm. I started to develop very heavy periods during that time. And so my doctor scheduled me for a, something called an ablation, which is where they sort of um, uh, burn off the layer of your uterus, uh, the inside layer that kind of, I don't know, they use a laser. Or, good Lord, I don't even know what how they do it, but it's this magical... <laughs> The magical thing that stops your period. But it sure as heck slowed it down. It gave me my life back. But I want to tell you that the night before that surgery, I wasn't supposed to eat and I wasn't supposed to drink, and I drank that night. I could not not drink. And I was terrified the next day, and I didn't tell anybody that I had snuck alcohol the night before. And then that night, I didn't drink, but the next day I did. And um, that was one of sort of my last, that was only a few months before I quit drinking, and that was one of those final, like, major red flags for me that even, you know, when there's surgery involved, I couldn't stay away from the alcohol. I was putting myself in that much danger, and that really, really bothered me. How about you, Ellie? What what do you uh, think of as you look back on this time? Well, it's all, it definitely is something that I can relate to. And, and just briefly, my um, history with perimenopause and menopause is a little bit different because I was um, I was sober probably four years or so, five years, maybe close to five years, when I started exhibiting the very first, very minimal signs of perimenopause. Um, didn't know that that's what it was at the time. Much like you described, Jean, my doctor was talking about stress and other things, and I completely relate to what you said about putting the game face on the doctor because I have found in my history um, the more it looks from the outside like I've really got my stuff together, the less I actually have my stuff together on the inside <laughs> because I, even, I would do this when I was actively drinking, you know, every sock matched the kids, everything was always perfect in the house because I just didn't want anyone to look too closely mm-hmm. at what was really going on. And so I felt if I dropped the ball in any of that, that everything would be revealed. But mm-hmm. even in recovery, as I was getting more stressed and my, you know, my recovery was losing its stability, um, and certainly the early symptoms of perimenopause were contributing to that stress, anxiety, and insomnia were huge problems for me. Mm-hmm. Um, again, my doctor really just did not I was 40, 
three at the time, and I'm adopted, so I don't know my medical history. I think one of the questions that's usually asked is, when did your mother and grandmother go through menopause? And I, I can't answer that particular question, but they just sort of dismissed it as, um, you know, it's got to be stress. But when I had cancer in 2011 and 12, I um, the chemo and radiation kicked me into full-blown menopause for mm-hmm. months, and they warned me that it may happen. Um, and then they said, you know, you you may come out on the other side of treatment fully menopausal or not. We're not really sure. And when the treatment ended, um, I didn't get my period for months. And so I thought, okay, well, I guess that's I guess that's done. But the symptoms just absolutely skyrocketed, and, and I was told that that's fairly common too when your body is it was is uh, jettisoned into an unnatural sort of trajectory on your menopausal arc. That the symptoms can be very intense and. I mean, this is sort of a behavioral pattern that I've always had, but the more anxious I got, the anxiety was absolutely crippling, and the more stressed I got and the less sleep I got, the harder I worked, the more things I did. I was like a mad woman trying to compensate for, like, the sort of crumbling interior world that I had. And so, again, I was getting the same feedback all around me. Everyone's saying, oh, look at Ellie. She's at the top of her game and working all these companies and doing all these things. And I was just in full-blown running mode, not literally running. I wish I could literally run from my problems, but I emotionally run from them. Um, and I know now, as, as I've been able to sort of dissect the process leading up to my relapse, now that I have some recovery again, I absolutely can see how those menopausal symptoms just completely eroded um, my ability to take care of myself, my ability to sort of think rationally or have some kind of self-awareness about where I really was in my life. Mm-hmm. And it was that, I mean, I, I hate the word crazy because it's, it's sort of a stu- all-encompassing word that doesn't mean the same thing to everybody else, but I just I felt not right in the head, mm-hmm. like the smallest mm-hmm problems would just just consume me and I'd be up at two o'clock in the morning with that hamster on the wheel going around and around and it it, you know it was like PMS times a thousand all the time is sort Mm -hmm. of what it felt like and thoughts of impending doom and things are going to happen to my family my kids would get on the bus in the morning and I'd have this deep pit in my stomach like this certainty that something horrible was going to happen to them and you know, I, I really didn't, and I don't really think my doctors did either connect the dots that there was a hormonal shift of epic proportions happening in me. Mm-hmm, and that, mm-hmm. um, so when I finally got a physical, I was really depleted on some, you know, on levels and blood work and things was coming back wrong. I had vitamin deficiencies and all other all sorts of other physical symptoms that were happening. Um, and I, you know, I'm not, I, I can't point the finger and blame one specific thing for my ultimate relapse but by the time I did relapse I was an absolute emotional wreck I mean the drink was the last thing to show up but it was the anxiety and the feeling of being out of control and the 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 that horrible feeling of knowing things were off and things weren't right but I couldn't figure my own self out anymore I was Mm -hmm. just in that headspace of just complete bafflement and you know what I used to do was to numb out the edges. What's the only way? The only way I could think of to escape from myself was drinking. And and ultimately, um, I am convinced that the and as are my doctors and therapists now that say that the menopausal symptoms were a huge contributing factor to that. But it just, the uh, medical community was really slow to connect the dots, as was I. I think in large part because of that the game face syndrome. You know that. 
putting I could game really pull on. myself together and talk a good game when I was uh, in front of people or in front of doctors who I just I was really reluctant to let them know how much I was suffering because it felt like a weakness in me, I, a mental weakness. This is this is Jean, and I, I want to say too that for a lot of us, when we were actively drinking and we were not in any way wanting to consider quitting, we did not want that to be the problem. So when you go to the doctor and you're talking about all these symptoms, of course you're not telling them how much you're drinking. Exactly. And maybe the doctors wouldn't connect it anyway, but, I mean, the, they may be able to say, oh, okay, you're drinking gob buckets of wine every night, you know, that's <laughs> playing with your your hormones. So, yeah, you're only 38 or 35 or 42, but exactly, you're too young right, for menopause. Right. But if they knew how much uh, women were drinking, and again, we put our game face on because we don't want them to tell us we have to quit drinking. We have this feeling like, listen, there's some magical way for you to help fix this. And One um, other side note before I forget, I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, That, um, mm-hmm. and I, I always tell this as a cautionary tale because the first medication that every doctor I talked to told me about was Ativan. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what the the medical, uh, lorazepam is the medical term for it, the pharma, pharmacological term for it. And Ativan is, is really, really deadly for alcoholics because it's, it's, a, it's a benzo and it travels along the same symptom, the synopsis that alcohol does. And even though I had been in recovery for a number of years, what it did was sort of just activate that little addiction center in my brain. It went, ooh, you know, it's like it's like booze in a pill, essentially. Yeah. And Highly that's another addictive. pitfall. The, the medical community likes to medicate things like anxiety. And, you know, it worked until I needed two instead of one, and then the two wasn't enough, and then all of a sudden a drink seemed like a good idea. So that's a cautionary tale. I'm glad you mentioned that, Ellie, because this is Jean, and, and uh, my doctor did, you know, I did... I didn't confess my level of anxiety to my doctor, but it was pretty evident to him that that was a problem. And he said, when I when I did go to him and say I am having problems with my with um, menopause symptoms, and he said, well, I think it's really anxiety, and I'd like to medicate your anxiety. And mm-hmm. I knew enough to know that that was not a path that was safe for me to go down, so I didn't take that. However down the road and I'll talk more about this later when I t- when I was then referred to a specialist a menopause specialist and I talked to him about my anxiety and said listen I really suffer but I know I can't take benzos because I'm in recovery now by that point I was and he um pointed out to me that progesterone is really key in helping with anxiety and mood regulation and so progesterone yeah. is what I'm on, and it has made a world of difference. But we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, Elizabeth, do you have anything to add about this stage of sort of drinking and and um, and the hormones back when you're actively drinking? Yeah, I do. <clears throat> I think I want to uh, just backtrack a little bit about the doctors um, because my husband is a primary care doctor, and so I know from his side how hard it is to mm-hmm. um, get to it, you know, and let's face it, the way our medical uh, world is set up, you know, um, you don't go sit on a couch and talk to someone like you would your therapist, for instance, you know, unless you are lucky enough to have a psychiatrist in town, which is really great, Gene, but, you know, a lot of us are going and we're putting gowns on or and we're sitting, you know, around a little desk and the doctor's at the computer and, he or she has, you know, five or ten minutes. And even if you make an appointment, you know, that's going to be 
a while, you you know, and you go in with your game face on, and really that's just a defense, right? I mean, we're, exactly. you know, you're nervous. It's not this is not your best friend. It's your doctor, you know, and you maybe haven't seen her or him for six months or a year or something. So that's normal and. I don't know. I think I, I think I, I really want to just empower women to say to themselves, "It's okay. Like I can go in and just be straight with my doctor, and um, this is you know going to be helpful." And we'll talk about solutions later. I think, but um, I know that I think because of my husband, I was really when I went into that that fateful appointment. And, you know, my weight was up and, you know, it was all bloated and stuff and my body wasn't processing the alcohol like it used to and everything was all whacked out. Um, I was in tears. I mean, I was a wreck. And um, she was very receptive. But I can imagine we were still in one of those rooms with an exam table, a little desk, and a computer. And I can imagine if I would have gone in and been like, you know, oh, you know, not my drinking, you know, I mean, it's, you know, she just, she wants to be polite too, you know, mm-hmm. and she doesn't, you know, there's, so, you know, I mean, obviously there's such a huge stigma around all of this. So, um, you know, yeah. So I, I, I guess that's, that's my takeaway from the last exchange that, you know, really doctors are people too. And some of them are probably going through the same stuff we are. And, um, to really put it all out on the table. And if you can't do it, fire your doctor and find another one. Find Good someone point. you can yeah. talk to. You're right, yeah. because I think in a way we don't we don't want to go in. Some part of our brain makes us withhold the information at that stage when we're drinking that we really need to tell our doctor. But just by virtue of the fact that we're there, I also think there's another part of our brain that wants them to see through us and help us. and, and Figure it out anyway. Yeah. Figure it out without yeah. us telling them. And, right, um, right. and and that's you know that's sort of a mythical magical um, ability that is it is an unreal expectation and right. and so maybe just to slow down I think we rush from things to thing and we rush to our doctor's appointment on our lunch hour and hope that he's on time and you know we, we're busy 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 but if we just take a moment and breathe before we go in there and get centered and think about what am I hoping to get out of this and and how can I I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell the truth. Um, I even encourage, um, I I did this with one of my kids who had a a doctor's appointment that they were sort of not sure about how they wanted to handle it or whatever. And so they just wrote it all out before they went in there, everything that they thought that doctor needed to know. And then it was there as a reminder, but also it was there that if the fear took over, you know, you could just hand a piece of paper over to them. Yeah. And yeah. so when you are feeling brave, that's the time to write it all down. And um, It can be a very short window, you. too, of, of yeah. feeling brave. It shuts yeah. pretty fast. Yeah. 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 Yep. Well, let's move on, you guys. Let's talk a little bit about um, how hormonal changes impact during detox and early recovery. So alcohol withdrawal is a delicate time. And most of our listeners are surprised to learn that alcohol is one of the few drugs that can be fatal to withdraw from. And the other is benzodiazepines, which you were just mentioning, Ellie. So the two things that uh, women and society in general consumes without giving it a second thought are the two most deadliest to get off of. 
even the most mild alcohol detox can present a variety of symptoms, including confusion, sweating, insomnia, irritability, anxiety, all of which mimic menopause. So the danger during this time is to mistake withdrawal symptoms for menopause and not seek medical help, or to mistake menopause symptoms as a bodily cry for more alcohol and drink as a result. So many women in early sobriety find that they have a very hard time getting past 30 days at first. And this could be in part due to the effects of PMS or monthly hormonal changes that create emotional relapse triggers. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. HALT is the acronym. Those are four big triggers. And all of those feelings are exacerbated by hormonal swings. So... Ellie and Elizabeth, um, do you recall in your early withdrawal um, phase and in your early recovery um, how those monthly hormonal changes felt, and were you able to identify the difference between withdrawal and menopause? Elizabeth, I'll have you answer first. Okay. <clears throat> so um, thank you. I, you know, I was perimenopausal probably from the age of like. 43, 44, something like that. Um, and I did use alcohol to treat my symptoms. Um, and I, again, felt really thought that that was perfectly acceptable. Um, and so when I, uh, you know, you're, I mean, I didn't have any uh, blood work done to, dis, to uh, tell me that I had actually been in menopause or that I was through the process. I just stopped having a period, and I, too, Jean, had an ablation. So um, I had sort of ramped up to this, you know, you know horrible, mood-swingy, heavy period type thing. Um, and uh, then I, I I had this ablation, and I never got a period again after that, and basically it was symptom-free. I, I mean, it was kind of crazy, but... Um, from the from the um, menopausal stuff, when I quit drinking, so that was all around 50, 51, 52 was when I, or maybe I was a little older, maybe 53 was when I had the ablation. And then I quit drinking when I was 54. And I remember being super prepared for, you know, stopping drinking. I mean, I read every single thing. My husband's a doctor. I was, you know, I was, you know, afraid I was going to detox and die. I, you know, I just didn't know what to expect. And so I I read, you know, I read about pause. Um, have we talked about that yet? Sorry. Um, we have a show the, on that. That's post-acute post withdrawal alcohol syndrome. Yep. Okay, yeah, post-acute withdrawal syndrome. I read about that and... um so, interestingly, when I did decide to, you know, essentially detox at home because I, it, it was safe for me to de, de, detox at home, I was prepared, man. I mean, I was ready to be up all night and I didn't have to go to work and I scheduled a massage, you know. I mean, I basically took inpatient into my house and that's mm. how I treated it. I made an appointment to see my therapist. I went on walks with, you know, people that would understand and, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, and, but, I, I, you know, after I did stop drinking, I did have a lot of those same sorts of, you know, paramenopausal anxious, I guess is 
the easy way to say it, anxious feelings that uh, lasted for months after I quit drinking um, where they would just come out of the blue, you know, where I'd be really, really nervous about something that was coming up or something that I had to do or or the world coming to an end or something, you know, free associate, you know, just free-floating anxiety um, that reminded me a lot of PMS, which reminded me a lot of perimenopausal stuff. Um, but now I know many, many other tools to deal with those kinds of feelings than I did, you know, back then. How about you, Ellie? Yeah, I was going to say, this is Ellie. I I absolutely relate to that. I mean, I've had um, two early recoveries in my career as a woman in in sobriety, and the first time um, I was physically severely addicted to alcohol and not menopausal yet. And so um, my detox had to be medically managed, I had to go to an inpatient facility. Um, and it's always so ironic to me that the drugs that they give you to help you safely manage detoxification from alcohol are they're benzos. Um, but if they're done under medical supervision and, and done appropriately, then they can be extremely sure. helpful. Yeah, with the worst yep. of the symptoms and um, the physical symptoms, at least the shaking and the sweating and the twitching and things like that. They and they do help a little bit with in, insomnia as well. Um, for me. Um, but the, so when I emerged from the early detoxification process, I didn't have the the perimenopausal problems like I did the second time around. When um, I did go to an inpatient detox, it wasn't quite a, a long as a, of a physical detoxification because like my relapse wasn't extended. Um, however, what I what I remember vividly, and it's still something that I'm dealing with now, is. So we manage the physical symptoms. I emerged after three or four days safely detoxified from the alcohol and then left completely unanesthetized from all of the emotional symptoms, and they are virtually indistinguishable to me. The anxiety that I experienced as part of being in early recovery was exactly like the anxiety that I experienced as a menopausal woman. I mean, they're so intertwined for me um, that I, I don't even really try to pull them apart because... You know, there's lots of avenues of maladaptive coping mechanisms that I used for anxiety for so long. Those those doors are shut. You know, obviously I don't drink over them anymore, and I don't take benzos or any other form of addictive drug. And so what it really did for me, similar to what um, Elizabeth referenced, was it set me on a path to find symptom relief for those, you know, whether it's menopause or, or early recovery, it didn't really matter to me as much as right. I need to find tools to help me feel better that are safe because this is, I know eventually the disc, the emotional discomfort of that would lead me back to a drink eventually if I couldn't it's sort of it, it, as a conjoined effort strengthen my recovery and work on um, tools to manage the symptoms. And uh, now that I'm, well, I guess I'm about 10, or, 10 and a half months into recovery now, um, I do see a little bit of a cycle around the worst of the anxiety and the worst of the symptoms. And so I can, I'm just, just now being able to differentiate, okay, this is probably a menopausal hormonal issue versus a um, an earlier recovery issue. Um, because, you know, the, when I'm, when I'm emotionally triggered from a recovery standpoint, it tends to be sort of situationally 
I can tie it back to something that I did that was hard or a relationship problem or something else that might be triggering me emotionally versus like minding my business, doing the dishes and all of a sudden, wham, you know, it comes out of the blue and I'm I'm just full of anxiety or I'm having trouble sleeping for no reason at all. I know that those are, are menopausal symptoms, but I treat them both the same. The things that I do for mm-hmm. solutions to those are, are very, very similar. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Ellie. This is Jean. I, I totally identify with like does that being kind of a fog, like that that those early days of recovery of just like you're slugging through it and you feel so crappy and you're you have so much hope of feeling better and and so you're just kind of getting through it all. Um I guess what I would say to our listeners is um awareness can be really helpful. So if you are getting through some of those feelings and then you find them coming back again, and you're thinking, well, I've been through that. Why am I not feeling better? Um, it could be because, yes, you're detoxing, and the and the withdrawal has passed, but now those menopause symptoms are creeping up. And, mm-hmm. and so what you might be thinking are um, alcohol-related withdrawal symptoms could very well be menopause symptoms. So take heart. In either, in either way, you're right. You have to find some good... Um, safe ways to alleviate those symptoms. And yeah. um, don't mistake them as your body's cry for alcohol. I mean, we taught ourselves for years that alcohol was the way to make anything feel better. And yeah. for me, one thing I notice is that when when I, even though I've had an ablation and am on some hormone replacement therapy now, I definitely do have sort of the m- monthly up and down emotionally. And I can kind of tell when I'm getting to that low um, estrogen part of my cycle because everyone around me gets flat out stupid. Like, <laughs> I'm like, what is wrong yes. with my husband? And then I realize, oh, oh, yeah, you know what? Everyone appears to be annoying right now. I think I'm the common denominator. And um, <laughs> that's when I start to realize, like, wow, is he ever grumpy today? And then I think, oh, no, wait a minute. I think this is me. Those are the reasons I used to drink, you know. I, I, any, anything that made me feel bad, I would use alcohol to feel better. And so just being aware that, hey, this is, this is a very natural part of the cycle and let's, let's make sure that when we're feeling that way, we have something safe and healthy and lovely to turn to to make ourselves feel better. Exactly. Definitely. So take heart, li- listeners, take heart. Um, it's, um, especially in the early days, you know, if you... If you feel like you're on a Groundhog Day where you're like, oh, my gosh, I just I, I just went through this and here it is again, it, it could very well be um, a change in your hormone cycle. Well, let's mm-hmm. just let's talk about long-term recovery. Ellie, would you read that last piece on long-term recovery of and hormones? Of course, of course, yep. Um, as people in recovery, our long-term success can depend on our ability to navigate life's changes. We protect our fragile early recovery by limiting major change as much as possible. Moving, career changes, and new romances are all ill-advised. As we become stabilized and stronger in sobriety, we develop the ability to adapt to various changes. But awareness, as Jean just pointed out, awareness is the key. For women, understanding the potential effects of hormonal changes on their recovery is crucial because these changes can occur slowly and subtly, and yet they can powerfully undermine our recovery. Even those with significant long-term recovery may be blindsided by the effects of menopause. This is a great time to consult with your doctor and to be open and specific about your recovery and your menopause. 
So I guess my question for you guys is as as um, women that are sort of in this age and we want to protect our long-term sobriety, um, just sort of what strategies are you thinking of and and sort of what kind of awarenesses are you making sure that you stay mindful of? Elizabeth? Well, um, I... Uh what popped into my mind when you asked me that, Jean, is that I um, take a lot of comfort in watching my own daughters and kind of helping them deal with their uh, premenstrual stuff and their menstrual stuff. Um, not that I drank like that when I was their age, but um, and they, and by the way, neither of them mercifully drink. <laughs> you know, so they. Uh, they have like my daughter will order one drink at a restaurant and and uh you know not even take a sip out of it and um the other daughter who's actually more like me um is pretty open and pretty uh clear that she needs to watch it so it's that's been great so i just want to put that out there but um when when we talk about like their menstrual cramps or their moodiness or in my older daughter's case, her husband now or her boyfriend or my other daughter's boyfriend, um, you know, they go to a yoga class or they take a bath or they go on a walk or they, um, you know, do some guided imagery or something. You know, they they just have other tools that I just, I guess I never even thought about that stuff. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I I thought, you know, when I was menstruating, I mean, it was a reason to drink and, you know, it was, it, or drink more. And, um, yeah, I, and um, so, um, I, you know, that's, it, it's it's really, it makes me feel um, good that, that I can talk to them about this and see that they're not repeating the same mistakes, you know, I was making. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, that one of the things that I have found to be the absolute most helpful is um, exercise. And I used to, I mean, I, you know, I have to do everything 110% and all perfectionist but, you know, I used to think, well, I don't have time to go for a six-mile run, so I, I can't exercise like I've ever gone on a six-mile <laughs> run in my entire life. <laughs> Maybe if someone chased me with an axe, I'd go on a six-mile run, but... What I'm finding now is, you know, just what is the, that expression? You move a muscle, change a mood. You know mm-hmm. that idea yeah. of just I've got I um, bought some yoga DVDs, so I can't even use the excuse that I don't have time to go to a yoga class, or you know I don't even have to be reliant on a schedule for that. I have a treadmill in my basement that I inherited, and I'll just I'll say 15 minutes, Ellie, just get on it for 15 minutes, and I usually once I'm on the stupid thing can stay on longer than I anticipated if I set a small goal. Walks are very helpful. I mean, it's there's that's the serotonin release that happens in my brain when I'm when I elevate my heart rate for a little while and it kind of the rhythmic sort of meditative motions of that I find extremely helpful. I find that I can't in my mind at least tie it to weight loss and fitness. I have to tie it to mental well-being. You know, I'm not here to win a marathon or get super skinny or toned up or anything it's this is just you know change my venue get get my body moving kind of mentality because when i get thinking about calorie counting or you know exercise regimes i get a little psychotic about the whole thing so it's just purely self-care and in the way that i think um 
and so I find those things. I also I I feel like she's coming up on every single bubble hour we've done recently, but I I download um, guided meditations and talks from Tara Brock or other people on iPods. I listen to, you know, um, soothing voices or sounds or music, something that is, you know, it it gives my brain something else to register on for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I also find that I have things like hobbies. I, you know, I've taken that I, I make jewelry and things, but that's also part of my business. So again, I can get very goal oriented with that. So I, experimented with sketching and drawing and things that are just they take just enough of my attention to kind of quiet my mind a little bit that helps a lot but if i am in the throes of a really really prolonged um sort of what i think of more kind of chronic anxiety as opposed to acute anxiety i i talk to somebody i talk to a friend about it i just i'm a big believer in but when I put something out there, somehow it just gets a little bit smaller for me. And just to have somebody else say, oh, gosh, I deal with that too. And so that I can't get in that pattern of I'm the only one who fill in the blank. You know, that I'm, um, yeah. if I'm truly suffering, but, that there's somebody else out there who's coping with it too. Mm-hmm. I, I also think, this is Elizabeth, I also think um, learning to ride this stuff out. I mean, we mm-hmm. we drank to to change our moods and if we can ride out the cramping or ride out the um, unpleasant feeling or the crabbiness or the anxiety we can learn to breathe through it and as Tara Brock said (laughs) Ellie to radically (laughs) accept it you know I mean that's her book radical acceptance um, to just you know take a brave stance and accept it and that it's going to be okay that it'll, it'll you'll cycle through it I think that is that is so important, you know, and we all say, you know, we can do hard things, and but gosh, I mean, can you ever hear that enough when you're in pain and scared and terrified? Not really, you know. Yeah, so go, talking yeah. to friends is important, your therapist, whatever, you know. That's an I mean, excellent is, point, and I think one of the things that I, I was just having this conversation with a friend in recovery, she's in very early recovery now, and talking about how for decades, I mean, I drank for decades, and not alcoholically the whole time, but I, it was always sort of my go-to thing where it's like this magic elixir that can just change my mood. So I, I spent more than 20 years never having to sit through emotion, and I'm frustrated with myself because two months into sobriety, I can't sit through a, an emotion. Well, of course I can't because I never trained myself how to do it. And to be a little bit patient and kind and gentle with myself to say, you know, this is something new. This is hard. I, I, I will learn to do this. This will come more naturally to me if I can just start to insert a new pattern when these things come along. Um, the second thought point that I just quickly wanted to make, too, is that having that kind of awareness around coping mechanisms, if you have some tools like this in your toolbox and they aren't working, you know, you're on your fourth day of insomnia or the anxiety won't leave you, that's an excellent cue to go talk to a doctor. Because that could be a differentiating mm-hmm. point between recovery anxiety and menopausal anxiety. Because you know these tools do work, and so if they're not working, then it could be something else. I'm, right. I'm glad you mentioned that, Ellie, because I think it is important that as much as we talk about sitting through your emotions and actually feel what you're feeling and don't try to numb out of it or escape from it, I do also think that we have to look at um, 
lifetime conditions is things that we manage for a lifetime. So as women that are into this stage of life, this is a lifelong health thing now that we need to do keep an eye on, and it will change over time. So just as we think of recovery as something that we maintain long-term, we also need to maintain our good health long-term, and especially as if we are on any kind of hormones or any kind of therapy to help through menopause. So I guess what I'm saying is um, if you are put on something like if you're put on the birth control pill or hormone replacement therapy or something, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't go for follow-ups just because you're feeling okay, right? You still, I think you do still need to go check in with your doctor and have your those regular things done rather than saying, um, uh, well, I'm just... I'm, feeling crappy, so I'm just going to feel crappy, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I think it's important to sort of make sure that you, if the doctor says come back in three months, you go back in three months. And mm-hmm. and um, and that even though you know that it's menopause and you know that these symptoms are things of menopause, it's still something good to go and talk to your doctor about because sometimes there are things that can be done to make you feel a little bit better. And as I said, for me, when I did talk to a specialist about my anxiety, he suggested, well, I think your progesterone is off. We always think about estrogen replacement mm-hmm. in menopause, but uh, progesterone is another thing that can be looked at. And for me, getting getting a little balance of the two has been really, really helpful and helped me feel a lot better. The Probably for me, the worst low, um, two years into recovery, I really got hit hard with the night sweats, um, not sleeping well, and after a few months of that, I started to fear, seriously fear, that I was um, in early Alzheimer's or that I was somehow losing um, my mind. And I was terrified. And it's probably one of the shakiest points in my sobriety because I really, I was really afraid and I really did not feel well. And um, when I went to the doctor and said, like, listen, I'm, I'm just... I'm scared. I'm I I can't do anything right, and I'm I'm mixed up, and you know I couldn't. I would forget things, and I couldn't sort of form a complex thought. And and um, we determined very quickly that what I was was exhausted. <laughs> yeah. And, and how uh, how far into sobriety were you, Jean? At what that point was did two that years into sobriety. Okay. So I was I was solidly into recovery, working again. Mm-hmm. Good, you know, maintenance program of of recovery, mm-hmm. and really, I had I had my head on straight in terms of of my sobriety, and yet just feeling so unwell and so tired, like halt, right? Hungry, angry, lonely, yeah. tired. I was I was tired, and it was making me angry that I was confused, and you know, it it was a real threat yeah. to it. So. So that's the thing. I think in long-term sobriety, we can kind of coast and feel like, okay, I got this, I got this. And, and that's that's when how um, off a hormonal change can make us can really mm-hmm. can really throw us. And I definitely read a lot of accounts in preparing for this show. I read a lot of accounts on um, different discussion boards and recovery blogs about women who had long-term sobriety that relapsed in menopause because they just were yeah. not prepared for how they were going to feel. And also, as we talked about earlier, that identity crisis, too, of like, 
who am I now? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, if we really right. hang our hats on being a mom or, or um, you know, being young and attractive or just identifying, over-identifying ourselves with what amounts to a stage in our life, you know, we can't hang on to that forever. So yeah. there's there's that flux of really identifying that who we are goes with us wherever we go and whatever happens to our bodies and getting solid in that can be really helpful to our recovery too. I don't want to belabor it, but I, 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 oh, sorry, Elizabeth, I'll be quick. I, I want to just drive that point home because, um, Jean, you expressed it so much more eloquently than I tried to earlier that, that first time around that, um, when I was talking about, you know, being in longer term sobriety and then having that sort of not right feeling and, I had a massive case of the shoulds or I shouldn't. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I should feel better than this. I should be able to. I should, you know, this this sort of this determination of just sinking my claws into it even deeper, despite the fact that even people around me, and this was, this was very scary to me, that I, I did not have an awareness of how off I was. That, mm-hmm. you know, before when I had PMS, I knew it was PMS. I knew right. that sort of highly irritable feeling, oh, yeah, it's that time of month again. But in perimenopause, when that becomes less predictable, it feels a lot more like crazy or early Alzheimer's or something like that than it did. And I wouldn't be able to see it. But my husband and my kids and other people, friends, were commenting, you know, are you all right? Are you, right. you know, you seem really X, Y, Z. And I, I dismissed it because I just thought that I should have a better handle on things. And, and that's another that's kind of part of the game face syndrome. Like, I got this, I got this, I got this. And I can't. Um, and the other piece of it from a long-term sobriety standpoint and is that I buckled down for a while on my recovery work and my 12-step work and all of the things that I was doing for my recovery. And that's great. It does strengthen my recovery, but it's not a replacement for uh, the medical part of menopause. I mean, I can't 12-step mm-hmm. my way through menopause. I can't. Mm-hmm. No, so that's I great. could be confused the other way around. What I needed was medical help and therapy, and I was just really drilling down on my recovery, um, and it helped keep me away from a drink, but it did not alleviate the symptoms of things that I was trying to get, that I was trying to help. And diet, exercise, um talking to your doctor about different ways to manage menopause, all of those things make such a big difference. And I think we can feel terrible if we think, I'm not working hard enough at my recovery because that isn't fixing this, and yet that isn't the problem. Your recovery is just fine, but this other thing needs some attention. Ellie, as you were saying that you were really shooting yourself, you were shooting all over yourself, Mm -hmm. Um, I I read somewhere this cute little joke that shooting yourself Shoulding yourself uh, is masturbation. <laughs> oh, brother, Mustard. I like it. Masturbation. But, um, so, oh, I know. That's Sorry, the humor is the first thing to go in in uh, menopause, ladies and gentlemen. The first thing to go crazy, <laughs> according to my family. <laughs> well, it, we've just <laughs> we've gone past our hour, so I just want to do kind of a final thought. Round up, if, you know, if each of you sort of has a few closing remarks to make, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Is there any sort of closing thoughts that you have as we finish our discussion? Well, wow, thank you so much. That was quick. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I really do want to drive home diet, exercise. It's interesting when when we're drinking, we're we're sort of not thinking about that, or we sort of half half are half ass, and we're not really doing it, um, you know, 
properly and then we get sober, at least in my case, and I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I I need to make sure that I'm eating well and exercising and, and all of that um, because my body's so tender. Well, the, re- the reality is is bodies really do want to repair themselves and they do want to heal. And, um, and, and so I, I sort of keep that in mind so I don't get all caught up in, you know, I've got to go out and do a six-mile run or something, you know. Um, yeah. And that that I really do moderate my, you know, the way in which I eat and the way in which I work out and the way in which I approach self-care because, you know, I could become alcoholic, quote-unquote, about the way in which I take care of myself. So, so um, you know, I, I think, you know, diet, exercise, um, uh you know, some sort of soulful, spiritual practice is is a really great thing. Um, Connecting, talking to each other, talking to um, friends, family members, you know, people in your program, uh, people who understand, who who get it, who are good listeners, um, I think, you know, is a really big, big part of it. And, um, yeah, that's, that's my two cents. Thank you. Love it. Yep. I would say, I mean, Elizabeth stole one of my big takeaways too. Um, it's that's sort of a, when it comes to self care and things like that. That it's, yeah, I'm terrible at all things in moderation, and it's a surprising to me how I can throw <laughs> self care out the window because I can't do self care perfectly. You know that what I find is just the smallest seed change makes such a big difference. I don't have to tackle the whole thing. I mean, like I said, a 15 minute walk probably does more for me than an hour run ever would. Um, or just taking, you know, carving out some quality me time during the day, and sometimes even that's just vegging out in front of a dumb video or something. It, it basically, follow whatever my instincts tell me to do, like which is to go off and do more and be more. I have to sort of let that first response go by, and then pick up the second one and say, "What can I do that will be the opposite of that?" Because that's probably better for me than what it is that I'm tempted to do, which is to change the feeling. Um, and I'm definitely going to look into the progesterone that you talked about, Jean. That's really that's me too. That, that I need to look into because that that is not something I have heard from my doctors yet. And um, the other thing, I just I have to, in, in the interest of full confession, I kind of you know I'm I'm the queen of I'm aware of it, so I don't need to do anything about it. So I'll be like, oh, you know, here's menopause. It's just menopause. I'm just going through menopause. That's all it is. And then I say, I'm really going to make that appointment now with my doctor and get these things checked. And I even went so far as to go to the doctor and get my FSH levels, isn't that what it's called, checked, to see where I am in the spectrum. I got them checked, and they're like, yep, you're menopausal or very late perimenopause, and we recommend you follow up with this specialist. And I said, great. Now I know I'm at this stage and, um, you know, I can handle it now. I'm going to make that appointment with the specialist and actually oh, yeah. do something about it because, you know, I it's like when your windshield wipers are broken, you only remember to fix them when you're rain, when it's raining. When it <laughs> you know, so I, 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 I'll right. be suffering and think, damn it, why didn't I make that appointment? So I'm going to put that into action as well. Well, this is Jean, and I want to point out something that um, my doctor said to me, which is that um, just because it's menopause doesn't mean you have to suffer. Uh, menopause doesn't mean feeling unwell. It's it's a different stage of life, but it doesn't have to mean discomfort, and there's a lot that we can do to make ourselves uh, feel more comfortable. So as you said, don't take it as like, oh, this is your... This is your um, 
sentencing here is now you're in menopause and you're going to be sweaty and miserable for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot that your doctor can do. And as Elizabeth said, if you have a doctor that you don't feel comfortable talking to or um, who doesn't listen, get a different doctor. Uh, yeah, feel free to I certainly did that myself. My, when I first went in to talk to someone, it just didn't go well, and it ended in tears. And uh, I, I went to see someone else, and it was a completely different experience. And he immediately uh, listened, took me seriously, and referred me to this fabulous specialist that I was telling you all about. So um, I definitely, definitely recommend um, talking to someone. One thing that my doctor did say to me as well is that one reason um, that we think, like, did our grandmothers go through this? You know, women have been going through this forever. I should be able to tough it out. In fact, that's not really true. Um, my doctor reminded me that if we look at the lifetime expectancy stats, it's really in the last 70 to 80 years that women have had a life expectancy that went past 55 or 60 years old. So in the early 1900s, um, before um, penicillin was invented and before immunizations were invented, the average life expectancy for a woman was 35 to 40 years old. So menopause is actually a relatively new problem, and because it isn't a life-threatening problem, it doesn't necessarily get all the research and attention that it should. So this isn't something women have been living with for all eternity. This is a pretty new thing. And um, there's there's uh, a lot of new science out there that can help us. So be patient with yourself, be patient with the medical community, and keep working at it until you start feeling better. And my closing thoughts as a woman who's kind of like standing on the diving board, you know, ready to dive into the next stage of life. I'm a new grandma, and um, I'm sort of looking into the next phase of my life. And to me, I just don't think of it as the end of my youth or the end of my, you know, an exciting time in my life, I think of it as the beginning of sort of that glorious matriarch stage where I really get to shine a light for the younger women in my life and and enjoy all the good things that this stage of life brings. So now that I'm saving, I'm not spending all my money on Midal, Tampax, and wine. Think of all the great (laughs) clothes I can buy myself. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, oh, I, I love it. it. And then, you know, I know we're closing as someone who's there, been there, done that with the menopause. And being, you know, my, my kids are out of the our, our kids are out of the house. I have to say, it's amazing. I mean, we ski. I, you know, I'm going skiing tomorrow by myself. Um, I'm super active in a, I, I think, in a really positive way. My husband and I um, do, you know, travel, and it's just the world. I, I'm so grateful for my life. I awesome. really, really am. And Love that. and I just, you know, I, re- I really, really want to say that, you know, I mean, I waited till I was 54 years old to quit drinking, which is, you know, it makes me really sad. But, you know, for younger gals in our audience, um, please, please stop and learn to manage your menstrual periods and then this will be a piece of cake because you'll you'll have it down and um you know what it'll be fine so thank you guys great so message much i love that That's great. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here and ellie you as well as always um we're running out of time so i'm going to quickly wind up the show so before we go we want to remind you to check out our parent organization shiningstrong.org 
And there you'll find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour, Crying Out Now, and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. Visit the Bubble Hour's website at thebubblehour.com to find a link to many recovery resources, including my blog, Unpickled. And you can also email us at thebubblehour at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and let us know your feedback on tonight's show and any topic suggestions you might have. So we want to thank you all for listening to the Bubble Hour, and we hope you have a great evening and a great week. Good night, everyone. Good night, guys. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.